Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. This is Share Our Strength's weekly podcast about food, passion, and making a difference in the world. And one of the things that we always love to talk about are creative and innovative ways in which individuals actually share their strengths in a literal sense, take what they're good at, what their special talent or gift is, and use that to the benefit of a larger community. And we have such a remarkable example of that on this episode because our guest is Paula Velez, who is the pastry chef at uh, Compass Rose and Maidan. She used to be at Kith and Kin, and she's also the co-founder of Bakers Against Racism, something we're really interested in talking about on this particular episode. And Paula is actually still at the restaurant, so we may hear some of that uh, actual restaurant vibe uh, coming across. Paula, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so, uh, Paula, before we get started, tell us, are you in the middle of prep right now for tonight? I'm actually um, cooking. I'm, so I work in two restaurants right now. I prep all the desserts out of one, though, and I'm actually setting up a pickup from my Dan from Compass Rose. And then I'm making semi-frito. I'm making Native American apple fry bread. And I am also going to decorate a cake while we're having this podcast. So I might be running around like a crazy person. <laughs> hey, well, I have a feeling this might be par for the course for you. And I know we have some serious uh, topics to talk about, but just because uh, what you just said was making my mouth water a little bit. Can you describe, was it Native American, uh, what kind of bread? Native American fry bread. So, so by the time that you guys release this podcast, my uh, decolonize your pastry box will be out. And I am actually going to be using things that um, our native communities, our indigenous communities from Mexico, Native America, the Americas, um, the Caribbean, etc., to make sure that I kind of give a voice to a portion of the population that never gets featured in desserts. Wow. So we're so, going to be using some of the proceeds. I have to calculate how much, you know, COVID has changed everything with uh, to-go packaging and, and uh, higher food costs. But we want to donate. Let me look it up, actually, so that I'm not misquoting myself. While you're doing that, um, I just love to hear you talk about bringing different cultures to desserts. We always think about that when it comes to entrees and main dishes, but the fact that you're now infusing so many different cultures and flavors and, and elevating different ethnicities through the savoriness of desserts is just so exciting. I can't wait to hear more about what you're doing. Yeah, so with me um, kind of using what I would have assume is a byproduct of colonialism, which is French culinary schools, Italian culinary schools. I'm using these pastries that we m most likely would have never learned in culinary school to um, not only educate the public on what it is to have these pastries, whether it's Taino or Mayan or Incan or, you know, etc. For me, I feel like I'm trying to take control of the narrative of what it means to be a pastry chef and what stories I can tell. Um, obviously, I'm maybe I am from European descent, but for the most part, I have a lot more um, African influences in my bloodline. 
and obviously Latinx and I'm actually from the Bronx. So I'm American. So there's so much to say and so many stories to tell. And up until recently, I hadn't even traveled the world except for going to the Dominican Republic. So I was almost like going on expeditions with food, you know, and understanding how we are connected as human beings. Once I actually figured that out, I realized that the world was a lot smaller than I thought it to be. And I found so many commonalities between different cultures that I just started to see people as people. And all I wanted to do was love people and love them through food. Wow. And where did it start for you with food? What was what was the beginning? Was it an influence of a of a family member? Was it a natural curiosity? Where did it all begin? The beginning, beginning of food and how I treat food and what I understood of food had to come from my grandmother. I would visit her for three months out of the year in the Dominican Republic. And there she would pass along all of our family recipes, our family secrets, where she would tell me um, something as simple as fruits that grow together will always taste good together. And I always, I took that to heart. So now I always know that if I visit a farm and I see two types of even vegetables and fruit, I know that they're going to be okay because they thrive together, you know, um, or taste well. But my grandmother really did kind of like break it down in a way that I understood as a kid, right? I didn't have my grandmother for a long time. She passed away when I was 11 and I'm about to be 30 now. So it's been quite a lot of years without her on this earth, but everything that she did teach me up until her death um, rings true and resonates through every fiber of my being. Well, I imagine if she could see you now, she'd be amazed. I think you were trained uh, at least in part at La Cordon Bleu in France uh, and have worked at many of the great restaurants. You're a, a rising star chef of the year nominee for a James Beard Award. Pretty incredible path in just a few short years. Oh, thank you. I, I try to work really hard. As you, as you kind of heard earlier when I was running around in the kitchen, <laughs> I, um, I work as if this is my first pastry job, you know? I, I'm still hungry and I'm still trying to create so much positive change in the culinary industry that I, I can't rest, not until at least some of the work that I have to do is done. You know, Paula, I, I love some of the background that I've read with you just recognizing the passion you have for your craft but you also felt like I'm young and I have this young voice and you all of a sudden started to speak up for yourself. And we're seeing that so much now with not only younger generations, but young women in the workplace. And I would love to hear you speak to where that courage and that gumption came from. I think there was earlier parts of my career where I started realizing that I held quite a lot of power in everything that I knew, right? As a safety net, I would overwork and I would learn as much as I possibly could so that I would become valuable to a company. But then on the flip side, I finally realized that I was valuable to a company. And I started 
asking for respect, you know? Um, and that doesn't mean that I was like, oh, you need to respect me because I know what I'm doing. It was more so just treat me like a human, treat me like a person, give me time off when I need it. If I'm sick, pay me equitably, if it's within reason, within the budget and things like that, that every year I practice more and more, but it wasn't until the pandemic hit that I actually became as, I guess, as bold as you guys see me to be now. I, um, honestly had nothing to lose once the pandemic hit. I was furloughed. I had just received um, the James Beard semi-finalist nomination. And for all intents, it felt like everything that I had worked for disappeared overnight. So I was like, you know what? I was always afraid of losing my job, but now I don't have a job. So why not? speak up and use whatever little bit of influence that I have now, whatever little spotlight that I have now to speak up for others that are going through exactly what I went through when I was in their portion of their career. Was there a, a moment, Paula, uh, it, it, near the beginning of the pandemic? Is this something that built over time or can you, do you remember, you know, uh, the kernel of of the, the, the thought that you were just describing kind of taking hold in you and compelling you to speak up? Was there something that triggered it, I guess, is what I'm asking? I think so. Um, so a lot of my younger culinary um, experience was kind of like, I don't know, troubled waters, right? I was a cook and not a pastry cook and I wasn't as good as I thought I could be. And I had to go on unemployment once when I was a young um, cook, you know, cooking savory food. And it was so humbling because I had started working at 15, right? I worked in like a Winn-Dixie and I would frost cakes and then I went to culinary school and then I moved to New York. And all I had known until that point was work, right? I had never not had a job since 15. And then when I was like maybe 20, maybe 21, I can't remember now, but I, I got on, I had to go on unemployment because I was um, let go. It was very abrupt and I was just taken off of a schedule, no explanation. And I felt so dehumanized in that moment because I, I begged to know why I wasn't on the schedule anymore. And when the pandemic hit now this year, I had to go on unemployment again for the first time since I was 20 or, you know, so that's like, it was tw like nine years later, I had to go on unemployment and I called the unemployment office after trying to fill out the um, application after helping all of my uh, staff through their applications, I finally was like, oh, now I need to fill it out for me. And I couldn't get through. And I just, I couldn't, there's something wrong with the system. It was bumping me off. So I went one week without unemployment, two weeks without unemployment uh, until it was almost, you know, a month later. And I finally got through to somebody and I was like, hi, I'm just trying to fill out this unemployment. I don't know how long this is going to last, but I would, I would, love to have some help, you know, and there was something in the system that wasn't 
intuitive for the time of or that we were going through they wanted you to look for a job actively for what you needed to apply you needed to um look for a job to fill out unemployment and receive any unemployment benefits and i i just i like finally after waiting so long i had to like stop and i was so frustrated and i was so scared and i was so broken that i just kind of like whispered out how do you want me to find a job when there's no more jobs how do i find a job if there's no jobs for me available and that moment made me feel like uh i was 20 again and i was scared and i was broken again and i felt less than human for wanting to just receive basic needs or my basic needs met at that moment and i realized if i'm feeling this way and i have all these accolades and all these papers that were written about me and all these awards that are given to me imagine somebody who doesn't have any of this so my focus was reshifted into not wanting to focus on the accolades anymore that didn't matter covid changed everything you know so i started speaking up for servers and i started speaking up for cooks i started speaking up for women of color for our lgbtqia community i i just i had no fear because i had lost it all you know mm. so in all of that i just kind of i i feel like i was awakened you know before i was just trying to maintain the status quo and uh you know i was like if i keep my head down and i work really hard then maybe somebody will notice and um give me an award but after all of that this pandemic showed me that it didn't matter truly it none of that mattered you know i i i love that and i i hear so much of my self and and my journey in your story one thing the pandemic has done for not only women but women of color we have found our voice in this moment and i you know have an opportunity to mentor a lot of young girls and a lot of young women that are early in their career and helping them feel that sense of um empowerment to to speak out for themselves uh tell me a little bit about how that transpires you into leading the kitchen leading your team inspiring your team um for me i i think that if i lead in kindness right if i lead in equity and i find ways to make sure that their life is a little bit better than mine then i've done a good job you know i try to make sure that when especially when my pastry team comes in they've actually worked with me like nikki rodriguez has worked with me for four jobs already um and deandra bailey has worked with me for three jobs and i try to make sure that they feel as much ownership of everything that we're making as i do right um i also make sure that i i'm not using their time just because i can you know they come to work they do their job and then they're free to live their lives afterwards whether or not they want to help me <laughs> cuz i'm completely um overwhelmed with everything that i do is 
up to them, you mm-hmm. know? It's not required. And for, mo- for the most part, they, they always are willing to help me. And then I'm, a, I'm very accommodating if I if they can't, you know, if they have a personal thing that they have to go through. But for me, the biggest takeaway from being a manager is that I want them, I want Nikki and Deandra, I want whoever works with me to want to be in upper management and in leadership positions. Like it, it, I don't have to be the end all be all, you know? So I'm going to make ways for them to understand how to you know, properly food cost, how to work through the system, how to make a menu from scratch, how to start a bakery from scratch, which is what we're doing right now. And I'm giving them a low risk, high reward environment for them to learn everything that they need to so that they can be equipped for their next jobs if they ever want to leave, right? <laughs> but, <laughs> but after a certain point, I'm going to make sure that they, they go on and become pastry chefs, you know? Because at the end of the day, I want to see more pastry chefs. I want to see more restaurants accommodating and understanding how to properly be equitable so that all departments can have a place and all trades can have a spot to shine and showcase their their story. One expression of exactly what you've been talking about that uh, occurred early in the pandemic was your co-founding of uh, Bakers Against Racism. How did that come about and, and where is it today? So that actually came about after I had worked a month-long donut pop-up that was called Doña Dona, uh, which means uh, Mrs. Donut. And that pop-up was for um, this organization called Ayuda DC, where we donated um, a portion of the proceeds to undocumented workers, especially culinary workforce, as they had no uh, way to file for the unemployment that made me feel so less than. But after that month, I had only raised $1,000 from a portion of those proceeds. I had taken $0 for myself. I just worked for free every Saturday, every Friday and Saturday to kind of bring forth this labor of love towards the um, undocumented workforce. And Chef Willa reached out to me and saw everything that was happening with George Floyd and his death and um, how the Black community kind of needed our help. So Willa was like, I saw that you did this pop-up and I would love to host another pop-up at Emily's, uh, Willa's former job here in DC. And I, I sat there and I was like, I could do this again, but if we just raise a thousand dollars, is it worth it? You know, is it, is that just an expression of, of something that we want to do to kind of appease our own spirits instead of actually making change for the black community? And I kind of told her, I was like, I need, uh, I need a moment to think about this. I need to figure out some things and then can I get back to you? Um, and that was Saturday on my last pop-up day uh, for Doña Dona. And Saturday night, I got to working on Bakers Against Racism. I reached out to Rob and I was like, Rob, I know you're going to think I'm crazy, but I'm trying to make this pop-up, this virtual pop-up that's called Bakers Against Racism. Can you help me with some graphics? 
And Rob was like, absolutely, friend. Anything that you ever need, I got your back. And I was like, cool. You don't think the name is too aggressive? And he's like, no, I think it's cool. You know, and Rob got to work. He turned that around within a couple of hours. And then on Monday night, on Saturday, Sunday, all day, I worked on all the documents, all the resources. I made all the Google Sheets. I made all the uh, like sign up or tracking forms. And then Willow reached out again and she was like, hey, you know, it's a lot. You know, I'm sorry that I kind of overstepped my boundaries. And I'm asking you, a Black woman of color, you know, to do this with me. I'm sorry that I even went there. And I was like, oh, no, absolutely not. My silence was not in anger, <laughs> you know. And then I sent her all the resources and I, and I tagged Rob in it. And I was like, do you guys think that this is crazy? You know, I was like, do you think that we can get 80 bakers to participate in this? Can you imagine how naive I felt now? I feel now that I only wanted 80 bakers, but I was like, do you think that we can actually get 80 bakers? Maybe all, all the bakeries and like restaurants in DC can participate. You know, we didn't think that this was going to go viral. None of us ever thought that this was going to go viral. And we launched on Thursday night, maybe like around seven. And by 10, we had 200 participants from all around the world ready to bake. And I was crying. I was like, I don't know what's going on, but I was encouraged. And I, and I was, and I was, I remembered when I thought about food, right? I thought about how in food, there's no, no division of cultures. There's just using it as, as ways to preserve memories as sustenance and, at the root of it all, to see people as people. And I remembered that this is an exact expression of that sentiment that I've always shared with my grandmother. And um, Bakers Against Racism was born then, you know? It's been really crazy, but we have started um, quite a lot of like partnerships with other bakeries and bakers, you know, Milk Bar is always uh, participating. And so is Levon. And we have this fund called Bees Grocery Fund that was started with a, a baker from Brooklyn who used the funds that she raised from her bake sale to then turn them into micro grants for essential workers so that they can buy groceries. And we keep on moving forward and highlighting BIPOC bakers. So how many bakers ended up participating it the first time you all had your weekend so um for the first iteration of bakers against racism we had over 2400 bakers london berlin mumbai malaysia australia etc 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 there's just so many bakers and then we had over 200 u.s um cities participating 42 states it's just you know it was from fine dining to at-home bakers it was something that I I was kind of like left the gas because mm-hmm. I, I couldn't ever have thought that three Michelin-starred restaurants would be joining in in a cause that I, Paola from the Bronx, would have ever made, you know? So it was, it was good, you know what I mean? Like, we all came together, and it wasn't that I could have ever done this alone, right? I needed the power of the collective, this right. Bakers Against Racism, and they, they hear it from me all the time when I go online or if I talk to them in emails. 
I tell them all the time that this is only possible because of them. This is their community as much it is as it is mine, you know, and the Baker community is strong and we're usually the first ones cut from a bakery program, but we are not the least by any means necessary. You know, we were able to raise almost $2 million in oh less goodness. than two weeks, you know? So all of the, the money that was donated went directly to the organizations that um, folks said that they would donate to. So none of that money actually filtered through Bakers Against Racism. One, because I'm just the pastry chef and I don't have that kind of bank account. <laughs> and, two, <laughs> and two, because I felt that when you are baking for an organization and you're giving directly, you're going to care more about that organization than if you were to give the money directly to me. I wanted people to truly get to know the issues that were affecting the, their Black communities in their own backyards. You know, there are so, so many times that we often forget that we're part of something bigger than ourselves. So I wanted people to really educate themselves and see how, you know, their local YMCA is affecting their community and influencing their community, you know, an organization like Horton's Kids here in Ward 7 and 8, you know, has been working for years to make sure that these children from Ward 7 and 8 get all access and, and all their pathways open to a brighter future, you know. So I wanted people to understand that when folks said Black Lives Matter, it wasn't just a hashtag. It wasn't just a movement that they see on TV or that they, they read about on Twitter, but that there were lives and people behind this plea, this call to action, you know? Pamela, what I love about Paula's experience and the example she said is you and I and at Share Strength, we work with so many chefs and restaurateurs who maybe have been doing their work for 20 or 30 or 40 years, and they've got, you know, multiple restaurants and empires. And I think Paul is demonstrating that every individual, no matter their age, uh, no matter the size of their business, can have a huge impact on the lives of others. It's just, uh, it's really an incredible, incredible, inspiring example. It absolutely is. Paula, you've talked about, um, and I've read in an interview, you talking about a, a new guard of a new generation of chefs. You know, Share Our Strength and Our No Kid Hungry campaign was really built on chefs, and you've just as we talked about at the very beginning, you've provided such an example of how you can share your strength. Or what are other ways that people who are just, they're passionate about food, they're fans of your cooking, they care about issues of race. What are other ways that people can get involved and support your work? If they actually wanted to get involved with Bakers Against Racism, all they have to do is visit our website. It costs zero dollars to sign up. We provide a lot of those graphics, and if there's an, a local activation happening, people kind of band together to get stickers or uh, packaging. If there's a national activation, we would just send out an email, and those who want to participate can participate. The cool thing about Bakers Against Racism is that when you um, host your pre-sales, you kind of get that money in hand before you actually have to bake any of those baked goods. So if you're still furloughed or unemployed and you want to participate, but you don't have the money to do so, you can only donate a, a, like the, a portion of the proceeds. Like if you need to um, use 
funds from what you raise to buy back ingredients to make sure that you can actually afford to bake, then by all means do so. This is very um, flexible when it comes to that. Um, as long as you're doing the right thing, we the whole baker community supports you. If you want to get involved in things that are a little bit more local to DC, there are communities and schools and organizations that need your help to even just help them move boxes around, help them make meals for children, or just give them a word of encouragement. I do encourage folks to um, see how they can talk about their own careers, even if they are furloughed at the moment, to inspire um, others to kind of know that there is a world where that'll welcome them, you know? And I think at the, at the end of the day, um, whenever I think about like race relations in America, I think it boils down to one common thread and that's that we need to love harder than we've ever loved before. We need to truly transform our nation with the action of caring for others as if they were ourselves. So that's how you can get involved. Well, I, I hope those words ring true to our listeners. I can't think of a better way to, a better note to, to close on. I know we've got to let you go. We're so grateful for your time. We're so grateful for your leadership in the industry. We've talked uh, in this conversation about a lot of issues uh, and examples that we can feel good about. One that I know none of us feel good about is the fact that racism still exists not just in our society, but in the food business that all of us are engaged in. And it's going to take new leadership. It's going to take young leadership. It's going to take a commitment to uh, creating opportunities that haven't existed for people before. And I know you're a, you're a very big part of that. And I just really want to say thanks. Thank you. I would like to ask, uh, add one more thing that I think got cut off when I was um, rushing like crazy downstairs. So the bodega box that we're launching here at Compass Rose in La Bodega Bakery will actually, a uh, portion of the proceeds will go to the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center. So I hope that people can decolonize uh, their pastries. And do you find that at the Compass Rose website? Yes, actually. <laughs> okay, excellent. I'm so glad you brought that up again. Well, I want to thank you again, uh, Paula Velez, and I want to thank Pamela Taylor, Share Our Strengths Chief Communication and Marketing Officer, and one of my newer colleagues. This is such an important conversation, and I'm grateful to the entire team at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign that makes Add Passion and Stir possible to our producer at District Productive, Woody and McKenna, both of our producers, and uh, would encourage our listeners to go to addpassionandstir.com. You can find previous episodes. You rate them and rank them and share them and, and subscribe. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Billy Shore.